Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show or download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Families Against Fentanyl. FAF is an organization set on attacking the supply chain of deadly illicit fentanyl. To learn more, visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org and sign their petition to declare illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a San Francisco conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Roni Lev. San Francisco, California, tourist destination for the Golden Gate Bridge, Alcatraz, and cable cars. When I was young, rice aroni was the San Francisco treat. And today, San Francisco is no longer known for rice aroni, but for an open drug market, overdose deaths, and crime. The Tenderloin area of San Francisco is infamous for this very different type of tourism. I visited San Francisco recently for a conference, and the hotel lobby required security to regularly redirect people who were wandering in off the streets, staggering, talking to themselves, and clearly high on drugs. Outside the hotel, there was a zombie apocalypse. Tourists were warned not to leave valuables in the car with signs featuring broken car windows. California has ranked number one in total fentanyl deaths in 12 months before September 2023, with 7,728 potential preventable deaths. Let me say that again because it's crazy. In one year, California lost 7,728 people just from fentanyl. The San Francisco Chronicle created a death map like we had for COVID, tracking fentanyl deaths. As of September 2023, San Francisco had 620 overdose deaths, the majority driven by fentanyl. What can be done? Is San Francisco a lost cause? To talk about solutions for San Francisco, I have two terrific guests that will inspire you as they have inspired me, Steve Adami and Destiny Plutch. Steve Adami has lived experience with addiction, homelessness, and jail. After being released from prison, he earned a master's degree in public administration, and he has street creds in his job as director of the reentry division of the San Francisco Probation Department. He's also the executive director of The Way Out, a recovery-focused homeless initiative of the Salvation Army. Destiny Plutch is the deputy director of The Way Out. She has hands-on experience in addressing the complex challenges of homelessness and implementing opportunities for people to rebuild their lives. To learn more about Steve Adami, Destiny Plutch, and the Salvation Army program, check out the High Truth show notes. Steve Adami and Destiny Plutch, welcome to High Truths. Hi, Dr. Love. Great to be here. Hello. I met you guys in Santa Rosa earlier this year at a fentanyl roundtable. I heard your presentation and I said, I have to meet these people um, and get to know you better. So inspired what you had to say. Um, so let's start just getting to know you a little bit. And Steve, we'll start with you. Um, 
you started your life with a life of crime and drugs and want to know how you how that happened and how did you turn it around? Well, thank you, Dr. Lev. I I was very fortunate. I spent a few decades of my life addicted to drugs, breaking the law, and cycling in and out of jail, prison, and homelessness. Uh, I got an amazing gift. I got clean and sober in a set of handcuffs. I got out of prison in December 2010. While I was on parole, I got a master's degree. In 2014, I was hired by a law enforcement agency, got promoted a few times, and eventually became the director of the San Francisco Adult Probation Department's reentry division. Uh, and then in later, earlier this year, in April of 2023, I left that role and starting May 1st, became the executive director of The Way Out, a homeless initiative of the Salvation Army. So we're going to talk about that, but I could see from the background that uh, you've had some successes with uh, certificates from the Assembly and Senate and, and, uh, and such. So we're going to hear more about that. Destiny. You are a bright woman with also a master's degree in public administration, and you could have done anything in your life. And of all the things that you could be doing, why choose a job with homelessness and drugs? How did you get to that? If you would have told me uh, 10 years ago uh, that I was going to be meeting you at Haida at a, in a room full of DEA agents, I would have told you you were crazy. Um, I was a social justice warrior at San Francisco State studying criminal justice, and I wanted to change the world. And really believed in um, decriminalizing a lot of things. And then after um, working at the reentry division um, and overseeing a number of programs, I really started to see how San Francisco's approach to um, drugs and to um, housing was having detrimental effects. And so, you know, over the time, my, my worldviews evolved. And so I really do believe in the, the balance of accountability and opportunity. That's amazing. And you are changing the world. Uh, yes. And doing that. So now let's talk about San Francisco. Uh, I want you guys to draw us a picture um, of what it looks like, how we got there, and then we'll talk about the way out. So let's start with San Francisco. Um, question is, is San Francisco, or more importantly, the people of San Francisco, a lost cause? What is that? What do you think? There has been a vast improvement recently. So things are really starting to improve. The streets are looking better. But let me give you an overarching picture of what's been going on. Each year, 19,000 people cycle in and out of homelessness. On any given night, there's 8,000 unstably housed San Franciscans or people that don't have a place to call home. 4,000 of them are living on our streets. Of the 4,000 living on our streets, our own data shows us that 70% of them are addicted to drugs. In a recent statewide study by UCSF, 60% of people had chronic health conditions, 28% had more than one chronic health conditions, 60% of people said they had poor health. So the people living on our streets are have a severe chronic homeless issue in San Francisco where nationally chronic homelessness is about 26%. In San Francisco, it's 35%. So our population is chronically homeless, unhealthy, with serious behavioral health challenges. Destiny, you might have some stuff to add. Yeah, just to further paint the scene in San Francisco, we are not without hope. Um, it is pretty uh, pretty bleak right now. If you were to walk around certain neighborhoods of San Francisco, you would think it's a different country. Uh, but we know that recovery is possible. We know that these problems are solvable. 
Um, I think that hopefully we'll discuss more in detail that if we really address the needs of people on our streets truly, and we think about from their perspective, then we then we have solutions at our fingertips. We just need to rally our resources accordingly. That's good. I like the the hope. Um, I, I described San Francisco in my recent visit as walking the streets, looking at the zombie apocalypse, or really worse than a third world country. Is that exaggerating? It's been like that since the pandemic. It has been really, really bad. But like really recently, like over the last, I don't know, month or two, there's really been um, an effort to shut down the open-air drug markets. I think the open-air drug markets were driving a lot of the dysfunction. So it's one thing to have an unstably housed population and an unstably housed population with behavioral health issues. But when you couple that with drug dealers on every corner, it just creates a huge disaster. So we're the city's really improving its efforts to not only get people off the streets, but we, there's been a really concerted effort to shut down open air drug markets. And I feel like, I feel like right now it's working. I don't know what the future is going to look like, but today it's looking better than it did over the past few years. Yeah, interesting. Because as Destiny, as you mentioned, you started your career thinking you know you want to decriminalize ev- uh, everything, and you realized that that's not really compassionate. <laughs> it's more compassionate to have some rules that keeps people safer. Exactly. Um, I think that everyone deserves opportunity, um, but we need to have some basic accountability, right? And that's, at the end of the day, going to be more healthier, going to create a more healthier and vibrant community. Um, We cannot um, say, we cannot put somebody's rights ahead of anyone else's, and we need to have some common, um, common agreements, right? What are social norms that we all subscribe to? And um, I think San Francisco over the past few years have has decided to pick and choose and largely decriminalize um, drug dealing. And it's resulted in um, over 3000 deaths to people um, struggling with drug use. Right. And, you know, finishing the picture of what San Francisco looks like, you kind of told us the demographics of, of who's out there affected uh, by drugs, but it's affecting the community, uh, businesses that have left the city. Um, and I think that that really uh, alerted the government also. If it wasn't the death toll, it was the loss of Starbucks and Nordstrom's, uh, uh, at least to, to make a change. That's an important point. I, I don't, for many years, um, there was this undercurrent of certain voices that were trying to document what was happening, call out, calling out atrocities that were playing out on our streets that were happening before our eyes. And, um, you know, as the statistics started to grow, um, didn't feel like policies were changing up until recently. Um, so like we, like Steve mentioned, it's pr- probably within the last few months that it's we're starting to see encouragement, some hope. Great. What are, one of the challenges locally is, is how do you blend public policy in, a, in an effective way that helps people rebuild their lives? And so what we've been challenged with locally and throughout the state is this kind of um, one-size-fits-all approach, which is all in on harm reduction, housing first, coupled with decriminalizing a lot of a lot of crimes through Prop 47. While I don't think we want to fill up our prisons full of people that are addicted to drugs, we also don't want people going in and stealing everything that's not tied down from every store. 
We don't want people shooting drugs on the streets. We don't want uh, children traumatized by encampments, um, streets being blocked from tents, uh, syringes and feces everywhere. That we need to, to have a balanced approach to create a healthy environment for everyone to thrive. Right now, businesses are not thriving. Right now, the streets are not healthy and people using drugs are not doing well. So our city has a harm reduction policy that says that we will reduce harm on drug users and the community. We're not doing so well on either of those fronts. We've lost 3,000 people to OD since 2019. But through our efforts and this coalition that we're part of, and this coalition isn't new, we've been rallying together since 2018, we have effectively moved the needle and put recovery back on the map in San Francisco. It's probably our uh, one of the, the greatest accomplishments we've done. We've been speaking about this publicly for several years. Yesterday, we were on the treatment on demand hearing at the Board of Supervisors, and you know, we're we're making headway. People are starting to listen to the rational approach of let's invest in people. And if as people get better, then we can triage their needs. But taking people that are addicted to drugs and mentally ill and taking them off the streets and just dumping them into a room is not solving the problem. 71% of our OD deaths came inside. It wasn't from people living on the streets. It was people that had a fixed address. So our work, our goals are always to invest in people, to help people rebuild their lives and kind of reclaim their place in the community. I love that because you have hope for San Francisco and for the people um, and to have, you know, health all around. Um, interesting what, what you just said about the, the overdoses. When we found housing, we got housing for people. I know in, in San Diego, one of my favorite homeless uh, person, may he rest in peace, Alex Soto, uh, got housing and died in that housing. Because we didn't address the primary problem of drugs. He, and he was not even addicted to fentanyl. He was addicted to methamphetamine. And, um, you know, fentanyl is in all the drug market. And uh, the housing didn't save him. It killed him. Um, you know, I want to, I'm so glad to hear that you have solutions and hope. But I think it's important to learn from history and understand how did this happen. Because if you don't, learn from history and understand the mistakes and policy mistakes that are made, you're just going to repeat the same ones. So can we talk about that a little bit? What are some of the policies that were in place that were a problem? And you kind of hinted about that, about just getting harm reduction and housing without addressing the undercurrent. But if we went even back just a step farther, and we took it back to the days of the three strikes law and really the tough on crime approach, where we just locked everybody up, right? And what happened was when that happened, there was a group of folks that were, you know, concerned that we're over incarcerating, especially when you look at the equity from a racial lens, where we're filling up our jails and prisons of, full of people of color. And to rectify some of that through reforms, what, what has happened now is we went from lock everybody up to lock nobody up. And we found no balance in between. And I think change often happens, as Destiny mentioned, at the intersection of opportunity and accountability. And I'm not saying that every homeless person is a drug addict. I'm not saying every homeless person is a criminal. I'm just using my own life and my own perspective. When I was addicted to drugs, I was committing crimes every single day. I had nowhere to live and I needed to get high. And that was the way I chose to live my life. What happens now is, is we victimize people. We don't allow them to become the best of themselves. So housing first, 
harm reduction and Prop 47 coupled together are kind of problematic. I think they, they're all very- explain, well uh, explain Prop 47 for people who don't know what that is. So Prop 47 reduced criminal penalties on some basic crimes, such as drug possession, petty theft, and a few others. Um, so what it did was is now any theft of less than $950 is a misdemeanor, and then possession of drugs is also a misdemeanor. So they're very well-intentioned, but what it doesn't really, the, the, external, the external factors that come with it are you're addicted to drugs and you have nowhere to live, now you just go steal to support your habit, and there's no consequences to the stealing as long as you steal below $950. And so it's impacted businesses, it's kept people somewhat stuck and sick in their addiction and nobody's talking about treatment everybody's just saying you just need housing and your problems will go away and as you mentioned doctor housing is not always the solution for somebody who's got somebody who's homeless and somebody that's struggling with addiction and other behavioral health issues yeah and yet we're spending millions it's not like the government's not spending money on the problem they're throwing money uh on the problem i don't know if it's uh you know good money after bad um, but it's not moving the needle uh, yet. So uh, I kind of saw, you know, watching the history from the opioid prescription epidemic, what caused that was also government inter intervention and in pushing pain uh, medications. Government never takes the blame for problems and looking at laws that were bad. Um, but uh, I think that there is something to learn from that. One of the things that's really interesting is in San Francisco, our Department of Homelessness has a budget of $672 million. So it's an increase of 429% over the past decade, yet homelessness has increased by 20%. So when you spend more money at a problem, the problem is supposed to go down. You spend more money, the problem goes down. What we're doing is we're spending more money and the problem is getting worse. The other factor there is 400 million of the 672 million doesn't go to help homelessness, it goes to pay people's rent through this housing first model. And it is very expensive. In San Francisco, it's $850,000 to build a unit of housing. So to solve homelessness at that price, and given the current policies, it's gonna be very, very difficult. And it really takes away the potential in people, right? We don't wanna see anybody live on the streets either. But what we wanna do is help people reclaim their place in the community. And I think we need to enlarge the solution space to get there. It is very interesting that you bring back uh, the, the the Oxycontin nightmare that we experience in this country, because I often hear in San Francisco, you know, the problem is, is that we just need regulated drugs and a safe place for people to use drugs. And I was like, yeah, I think we tried that through through the whole pain management era, and we decimated communities. We sued Purdue Pharma for six billion dollars, and then we sued all these uh, all these pharmacies like Walgreens, and now we're just repeating the same thing with fentanyl on our streets. And this, and some people think the solution to that is safe consumption sites and regulated government drugs. And I, I just shake my head. The, the solution to addiction is not a new place to shoot dope or somebody else to give you the dope. The solution to addiction is recovery. And I think we need to start prioritizing recovery and continue to change the narrative of how important it is to support people through kind of the challenges in their life in a way that gives them back their lives. Yeah, and Steve, you and I agree on that. I mean, I've heard several presentations and also from New York City, they're very, um, they, they boast about their safe consumption sites. But at the same breath, 
they tell me that they have housing uh, for people who don't have homes for 80,000 pe- people. Um, so they, they have shelters for 80,000 people, and they say, hey, no one dies in these shelters because they have naloxone everywhere. So they already have you know, safe consumption sites with all uh, with the indoor housing, and yet they don't have a safe place for people to go who want to quit. That's what we're missing. We de- don't need more places to use drugs. We need more places to be safe and get away from drugs. Exactly. I, you know, that, and that's the thing about going all in and housing first, and this coupled with the harm reduction policies that are infused in that model. Um, we've taken away from shelters, domestic violence um, resources, um, from treatment programs, all in the vein of rerouting our money toward um, permanent supportive housing. And so we've we've done people a disservice at the end of the day because we aren't creating these safe spaces where people can actually recover. Um, There's no required component in permanent supportive housing to actually participate in the services provided on site. Um, And so we're we are really, like you mentioned earlier, sending somebody to permanent supportive housing and their active addiction might be akin to a death sentence. Yeah. And I don't want anyone to hear this possible thinking that I'm against harm reduction. There is a role for sub segment of the population, very small, extreme segment segment of the population that, you know, they're not going to do treatment. They're not going to do that. And they, you know, we want to reach them where they are, but not keep them there. But if we look at the big picture of the entire population, I don't think that's where the majority of the money and effort needs to be. We need to move upstream from that if we really want to think that five, 10 years ago, we're going to get a hold of the problem. Uh, and and the reason I say that is because, again, learning from history with the opioid prescription epidemic, um, I was part of the problem at the beginning, you know, prescribing. And I saw two populations, people who were on this bag of or bucket of medications, and I'm thinking as a doctor, my God, what what am I going to do with this? I can't just take them off of that. I just need to keep these people alive. That was a small segment of the population, an important one, and we wanted to just keep them alive. But the solution, the way out of the opioid prescription is not creating a new generation of Americans who are addicted in the first place. That's how we got out of that problem. And uh, so I want to hear from you. What is the way out solutions um, that the Salvation Army and that you guys are implementing? So I think what Desi and I have done professionally, so when we were with the probation department, we designed and implemented a portfolio of recovery-focused programs. There is about 60 programs still operational today that we left behind. And what we're able to do is with the Salvation Army is there's been a void in leadership in the recovery space in San Francisco. The Salvation Army already had a ton of programs operating. We house 750 people each night in San Francisco. We've got a licensed withdrawal management and drug treatment facility. We've got numerous transitional housing programs. We do have permanent supportive housing as well and a family shelter. And so what Destiny and I were able to do is we created an integrated model that coordinated all of our local services into a recovery system of care. And what the goal is, is to get people off the streets in real time, help them stabilize and heal through a withdrawal management program, transfer them into long-term care and residential treatment where people begin to learn how to live, then give them a couple years to practice living and become financially independent 
through a recovery-focused transitional housing program, and then help them reclaim their place in the community and become fully independent, but they're part of our alumni network for life. So when we meet you, you're on the streets, you're struggling with addiction, you have nowhere to live. We, with compassion, help you get off the streets, and as I mentioned, stabilize and heal and move through this continuum. The beauty of it is, is if you make a mistake throughout your programming, you don't become homeless again. You might just go to a different level of care. So our ultimate goal is to help people rebuild their lives and reclaim their place in the community. And I think through all of our efforts and what's embedded in our ethos is that when you believe in people, you believe people can change. And that's where we've had really good results recently. In the last six months, we've launched the city's first drug treatment on demand program at the Harbor Light Center. We have doubled enrollments there. The program is at nearly capacity. We launched a recovery-focused transitional housing program uh, in the Mission District of San Francisco, a beautiful place that is also at capacity. We're remodeling that building uh, in January to expand capacity in that site to 100 people. Um, and then we're looking to utilize our all of our properties across the city as the city's largest nonprofit landowner to add up to 1,000 beds to our recovery system of care. Wow. I love that believing in people. Um, I I think in what makes your program different than uh, a lot of communities out there uh, is I see people saying, "Okay, let's get housing, let's fix your teeth, uh, let's even you know give you uh, crack pipes if you need that. We'll give you fentanyl strips, um, and we're not and maybe some you know suboxone and." Uh, but but there's only like one, like you mentioned, one-stop shopping. Here you have different levels. I, I It seems to me like behavior modification. This is step one. And if you do well here, you're going to get to step two. And and there's incentives of, of, of getting better or getting into recovery where a, a lot of places just have, okay, well, let's give all these resources to everybody who, you know, no matter what, and, and try to triage that somehow. I think we're trying to create a, a culture in, amongst our programs, but particularly throughout the city where recovery is possible, that when somebody makes that decision, that really tough decision in that moment of their addiction, that we got them, right? That there's a there's a network of um, programs of people that are ready to embrace them and walk them through this journey that might take them years. Um, and so, yes, we, you know, through our Recovery Pathways Initiative, um, or pathways to independence, I, I apologize. Um, we have a um, incentive to give people two years of transitional housing, recovery-focused transitional housing after they complete a 90-day program. And that's to any program in the city, right? We're saying, hey, we got you on, on, on the back end. For some people, you know, after, you know, detoxing and kind of getting a moment of clarity, the world may seem really overwhelming and we're here to say, hey, we got we understand that and we're gonna here to walk you through it for the for the long term. So really changing the culture. What what is the reception to your to your program? I see people uh, well last night I worked and left the emergency department on a patient who didn't he I never saw he's probably still in the ER. I didn't wake up. He was found in the bathroom, um, covered in feces, unresponsive he had pinpoint pupils. We gave him naloxone a couple of times. It didn't really work. And I finally got a drug screen. It was PCP and meth, not, not fentanyl. Um, and uh, 
you know, he's going to wake up and probably leave the emergency department to the same cycle. But we ask everybody who leaves the emergency department, like, do you want to get help? Do you want to go to uh, detox? That's kind of like what we could offer. Uh, here's some resources. And a lot of people don't want that. Are you, do you run into that or how do you break that? It's definitely the culture in San Francisco. There was a hearing yesterday at the Board of Supervisors on Treatment on Demand, and the fire department actually did an amazing presentation on their interactions with people that are struggling with addiction. I think Destiny mentioned earlier, it's the change in culture. There really are two points where we're like interruption points that happen in a drug addict's life, right? One, you OD, you're in the emergency room where something bad happens to you, you end up in the hospital. The other one is you get busted, right? And those are two moments where the, you could possibly have a moment of clarity. The mere fact that people are choosing, like the gentleman that you described, right? That person is gonna choose to leave and go back to the streets. It's a bad cultural issue on the streets, that means. That means the message out there is, is that it is okay to live like that. And again, drug addiction, drug use, personal choice. I personally don't care who uses drugs. What I do care about is when I walk outside my house, there's not a bunch of people laying in the street that looks like a third world country and people are allowed to just kill themselves. And the message we're sending in San Francisco is there's outreach workers and they're pushing around what appear to be baby strollers with all these harm reduction tools just keeping people sick. Now, I'm not against harm reduction either. I don't want to see the spread of disease. I don't want to see people get kicked out of programs when they relapse. I want to see people get moved to a different level of care. Um, I don't want to see people OD and die. But I also want people to have authentic conversations when they're handing out that stuff about what is happening in somebody's life. What are the side effects of, of them living on the streets and using drugs or going to the ER where they're almost dead and then choosing to go back to the streets and use drugs. We don't have authentic and honest conversations with people anymore. I mean, our coalition and the group that we um, are associated with, we definitely do, but it's not its not the culture in San Francisco. And I think it, that is part of the problem. Like even during my worst days, I knew the way I was living was not good. I did, I knew I wanted to live differently and there was moments I would make a decision to do so. Nowadays, people are just outright saying, nah, I'm good. I just want to stay like this. And that that's that's troubling. That's why we created the Pathway to Independence, where during our outreach engagements, we're telling people, we don't need an assessment. We don't need you to go to the public health department. We don't need a screening. If you want off the streets, we can do it right now, this minute. We can get you in a place where you can rest, you can stabilize, you can begin to heal. And if you're willing to walk with us through that process, we will guarantee you two years of housing on the back end, possibly more, depending on your needs, where you can become whole again and financially independent and learn marketable job skills. Like the, Again, the goal of this work is, is to give people back their lives. And so, I think- So let's say I had this guy in the ER yesterday, and let's say he woke up today, I got to see him and say, hey, this is what happened to you. Um, do you want to get treatment for your addiction? And let's say he says yes. A lot of people say yes, but then I give them like brochures and stuff and it's like they don't get there or there's an appointment two weeks from now and at a clinic and they don't get there. But if they he woke up and said, yeah, I want to I want to do something, then what happens if he connects with you? What would happen? Take, take us to that process. They would be immediately intaked at our um, 
withdrawal management program or detox. 24-7? Um, it's not a 24-7 facility. We do have plans to eventually go to a 24-7. Right now, it's open till, I believe, 10, 30, 11 at night. Um, so we're accommodating late night uh, uh, admissions. They can rest. They can get some water. They can sleep. They can take a shower. They can get um, just just relax, right? To let that physically, it's a social model detox program um, and they can stay there for a few days, um, up to two weeks if that's what they need. Um, but we would rapidly transition them um, if that's their goal to residential treatment. And we, you know, we- and, and at that acute care, do you have doctors? Do they need Librium prescriptions or Suboxone or what What medical needs are, are needed there? Right now, it's a social model detox. So we do have community partners where we work with community mental health providers and off-site nurse practitioners. We are trying to integrate a medical model into our withdrawal management program because of the needs of the people on the streets. Uh, so we're working on that partnership now. As it stands, if people come in, they need methanol or suboxone, we will take them to get it and get a prescription, uh, as well as their other behavioral health needs. But right now, it is just a social model detox, but we are pretty good at integrating community mental health into that. Um, and there is there is a licensed clinician on site that does work with folks, but we do need to, uh, you know, it's most of it, this is donor funded. The public health department does not fully fund this program. So our donors are, are really helping us uh, scale this model. But we are moving in that direction to. Yeah. I think I see people at that point in the emergency department. Also, we see people who want to get into MAT and treatment and we're refilling their blood pressure medicines and their psych meds or whatever, because they, they were lost. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's that need. So they, they could be there for up to two weeks. Do most people want to stay or they most people rest and leave? What What's the... What's the attitude? We make the transition over to, re to residential treatment, which is on site. We've cultivated a therapeutic community of sorts on um, on the campus. So we have our um, withdrawal management on on one end of the campus, and then right next door we have our residential treatment. And so they begin programming while in um, our withdrawal management and attending groups um, with the residential treatment folks in residential treatment. Um, when they're able to. So that way they can get accustomed, they can feel, get a feel of what that um, program looks like, feels like, and we kind of build that bridge. Again, it's about cultivating community, right? And and no better to do that as soon as somebody's able to. So that way we, they can make that conscious decision. What percentage of people do you think want, want to continue? From withdrawal management to residential treatment? Yeah. Pretty high percentage. I mean, I, I don't have, I can get the data for you. I don't have it in front of me, but there, I think the people that don't stay never intended to come. So I think, I think often it's a bad referral system. So somebody says, Hey, you want to get off the streets? There's a place we can take you. They don't say, do you want drug treatment? And so we get people that get there and they don't want to be there from the beginning. And so what we do with those folks is we don't put them out by any means. They obviously cannot use drugs on our on our campus, but what we'll do is connect them to a more appropriate level of care. There's our other resources and our facility is very integrated into uh, a few models where they can refer people out. And we'll just you know we'll let them sleep off the night and then if they want to go somewhere else we'll we'll actually walk them over to a different facility 
Um, if they want to continue using or go back to the streets, we'll, we just won't discharge them to the streets. We'll actually connect them to a more appropriate level of care. Nice. And that, and what is that other level of care? Like, is that more the harm reduction approach or allowing yeah, people to still use drugs? There's a sobering center where people can stay. It's 24 hour stays at a time. And there is some medical staff over there. I mean, it, it's one of those dynamics where what are you going to do when people choose to live that lifestyle? If people are not willing to quit, and I mentioned earlier, there's often interruption points. What we need to decide as a community is what are we going to allow in our neighborhoods? Are we going to allow open air drug markets? Are we going to allow public drug use? Are we going to allow people to steal everything that's not tied down? What are the, what are the standards, right? And so I think that's something that's, that San Francisco is going through kind of uh, a thoughtful process now, like how the people that live here want to see their city. And I think the tide is changing. I think we're really doubling down on recovery. We don't want to see the chaos that's happening on the streets, but we want to provide opportunities for people to leave that lifestyle and live a different life. And hopefully our model will be the model that gets adopted. But Yeah, I think I hear you guys saying that what happened over time is a social norm changed. Um, California, Oregon, uh, Washington, we're like, okay, we want to decriminalize drugs and it's okay to use. And uh, and that became the norm. And now you're saying, no, we don't want that norm. We want recovery as, as the gold standard, not to keep using drugs as a gold standard and give people hope and and um, a way out with, with steps involved. I think that just, you know, latent... Um just permissible drug use in theory sounds great, right? To decriminalize all drugs, but the externalities that are playing out on our on our streets in San Francisco shows us that that's really detrimental to actual drug users. And I'm not talking about recreational drug users and, and you know, and who who go out for a night and party. Although you know, we know that although they die too, that drug supply. Yes, but we're talking about where so quickly people's lives turn, are turned upside down because they visited San Francisco to maybe try drugs in the, in the Tenderloin area and they end up staying here for who knows how long, right? Um, and just lose all hope. So, you know, again, I think San Francisco, to Steve's point, we're really kind of self-examining and saying, what do we want, you know, what do we want our, our values to be? We can believe in... Um, we can believe believe that people have the power to change, and um, I see again the tides turning. That you know our, we have a lot of support um, in our uh, public officials right now, but also from the community. The community is sounding the alarm. They're saying, "Hey, we've had enough. Um, we are really, really tolerant, and we believe in programs, but we just don't believe the programs that we've invested in to date have actually worked." Um, so we're right. trying this new approach. What makes you so unique, Stephen Destiny, is that you you are people who work, you know, boots on the ground with people to give them hope, to get them out of the depths of despair. But you're also you also believe in deterrence and and laws that um, you know what, there's consequences for for uh, not just uh, like we have now open air drug markets. 
Well, accountability is huge. It's the linchpin to change often, right? And I don't want to live in a city or a county or a state that's like a free-for-all. It's not healthy. There's got has to be consequences to behavior. I think, you know, back to the question you're talking about, like addiction and people using and the response, when drugs are leading you to live in a tent, lose your teeth, lose your family, end up in judges' chambers, jails, prisons, on parole, on probation, it's not working. It's not hospitals. working. And in, in hospitals. And when when people have, you know, do outreach and are having conversations with people, they don't get deep or authentic with them. And to allow somebody to live that life is extremely harmful. So, you know, there's another famous guy from Stanford named Keith Humphreys. And, you know, I have to say, I agree with Keith. He says, shutting down open air drug markets is harm reduction for all of us. And I think that <laughs> nice. the negative impact that the open air drug markets have had on San Francisco have been at the root of our demise. And now that we're taking some proactive steps to shut them down, things are improving. You know, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm often very critical of things. And I also want to give credit when things are going well. And I will say that the effort over the past couple of months to clean up the city has been really good. And I'm very proud to be part of that movement where people that are wrapped up now in the system do have an opportunity at a new life with us and some other providers. So, All right. So one of the things we talk about going upstream um, as far as the fentanyl crisis is declaring fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. That's something supported by Families Against Fentanyl. To deal with fentanyl, not just on a level in the hospital or in recovery like you guys do, but to get the federal government involved in a high level to declare fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction so that we have all government approach to stop the precursors and production that's coming in and, and killing our, our citizens. Um, I know it's not exactly what we're dealing with here, but Steve and Destiny, tell me what you guys think about that. I mean, I think from a starting point, we want to just make sure that we have accountability. And I think the good place to start is let's just start arresting drug dealers and prosecuting them. Um, in just this year in San Francisco, there's been approximately 500 drug dealers arrested. 480 were released either to pretrial diversion or on OR. There has been, of those arrested, there are 535 open warrants for failure to appear for people that have been arrested for drug dealing. Of the 400 people that were arrested for public drug use, 25 percent of them had a, had a warrant in a different county. So I think the first thing to do locally is let's just clean up our city, uh, arrest drug dealers, prosecute drug dealers. And what happens at the state or the federal level um, about going farther than that would be something for politicians to, to deal with. I think personally, we don't want to go back to uh, the era of the, the crack epidemic where crack cocaine, people that had crack cocaine got really stricter sentences than people with powder cocaine. But we do have to have some accountability. And right now we just have none, right? So I do believe in a balanced approach where um, there's laws and that we enforce the laws. And if you're going to come sell dope in San Francisco, you're going to go to jail if you get caught. And we need to hold people accountable and we need to clean up our streets. And I do think we've had a really good over the last couple of months, we've done a really good job in San Francisco between uh, this coordinated effort amongst law enforcement and our district attorney to arrest and prosecute drug dealers. And our streets have cleaned up in, in, in doing so. So uh, it's kind of my viewpoint on the whole thing. I don't have 
the larger scale federal kind of uh, purview, but locally, I do want to see people, drug dealers arrested and not selling drugs in open air drug markets throughout our city. Right. Because you care about people. people. <laughs> That's right. Um, and also with your experience, you sometimes jail is an opportunity to, to get your life around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Destiny, what about you? What do you think about that? I have to echo these sentiments that we need to have accountability at our basic, at the basic street level before I will leave it to politicians to decide our national policies. But we need to just, as as residents, we just want to feel safe walking around and want to reclaim our street. Um, and right now, our our court system has, um, by and large, for many years, arrested people, released people, and um, people return to business as usual. And we often said that the only one who's benefited from this crisis has been the drug dealers themselves. Um, they're the only ones who are thriving out here. Um, and that's not fair. That's not fair to the businesses. That's not fair to the residents. Um, that's not fair to the victims of fentanyl. And um, it's really important that we hold them accountable for their actions and their part to play in uh, this crisis. Interesting. So I want to ask another question, kind of going upstream from from fentanyl. Um, I see uh, marijuana. And that's because when I talk to people who come and overdose in the hospital and I ask them, tell me about your journey on drugs, it invariably the first drug they've ever used at a very young age, sometimes like nine years old, um, is marijuana. And I think that that's important. I tell them that I'm asking them this question because it tells me that you've been, your brain's used to taking drugs for 20 years. You're not going to just stop in one month or one week of Suboxone. Um, so I, I, I get that. So they could understand too. Okay, well, I, I, you have to reprogram your brain. And if you've been using since you're nine years old, it's going to take a while, depending on how old you are. Um, that's the link I see um, with uh, marijuana. And uh, what is what are your views on that? Well, na marijuana has become a national part of our um, society. It's part of the everyday fabric, especially here in California and in San Francisco. And I think that we need to study the long-term effects that it's having on people. And, um, you know, it, it may be, as you mentioned, that it, it likely is a gateway toward um, longer, um, more addictive drug use. Um, but I think that remains to be seen at the larger scale. And But I do trust your opinion as a emergency room doctor and you are on the front lines. Yeah, I'm thinking again, last night, I just forced last night, and one of the patients who's still in the emergency department is a young kid, he's 19 years old, came in very paranoid, hallucinating. He was already in crisis centers. And and um, I think the, the emergency physicians, even psychiatrists kind of blow off uh, the marijuana problem. But I ask him, like, tell me what you're using, what kind are you using? And he's using wax. That's 98% THC. And if at 19 years old, I could get him to stop that, then maybe he will have a future without mental health problems if we catch that early. But if nobody says anything, if people just ignore it, then you're condemning this young kid to a future life of psychosis and homelessness because we're not getting to the root of his problem because we just say, oh, okay, well, it's just marijuana. Um, and uh, we, we have, you know... Uh, science evidence with, you know, millions of people showing um, the association of THC, especially if it's high potent daily use, 
and mental health, um, up to fivefold increase risk for people who are using high potency every day of getting a mental health issue. Not everybody who smokes cigarettes is going to get lung cancer and emphysema, but we know that that's a risk. And the same thing goes with marijuana and, and mental health. I mean, one of the things with marijuana is like the potency has changed so drastically since like the 80s. And then it's it was always readily available, but since it's been legal, people just walk into a store and buy it, right? So I think that, I think being legal gives people the idea that it's okay for you, right? Much like alcohol, um, where, where again, if it's problematic in your life, you shouldn't do it. And I think people have a hard time deciding when it does or does not cause problems in their lives. But marijuana in particular, I think the potency of it today is what is causing a lot of the negative impacts on people's brains, especially younger people when they're using it. I never really was much of a weed smoker. It's been yeah, years, like probably 25, since uh, I stopped using weed when I was started using other drugs. And uh, yeah, so for me, I don't have a lot of information on it, but I do see definitely on our streets, people smoking it and a lot of like, behavioral health challenges related to it of younger people mostly because of the potency is what I'm assuming. Do you address that at all when um, you're seeing patients coming into your pro uh, program? I, I, uh, you know, I, I triage, I, I do my own harm reduction, right? If your ish, big issue is now, you know, the guy last night with PCP and meth, I'm not going to talk to him about his marijuana use because he's got, you know, higher level things to deal with. Um, but, but eventually, uh, you know, I would mention that too, as far as protecting your brain. Is that, does that come up at all? From a program standpoint, they definitely, I mean, we don't work with clients or patients, Destiny and I, we kind of coordinate our efforts. We oversee systems. Uh, but I know the staff that work in our programs definitely address that stuff. And those are all part of the initial in, in, uh, assessments and intakes. And when they're developing treatment plans, they're considering all those factors. I do want to say, and I want to preface this, that our initiative and the programs in our initiative are all drug and alcohol free. So people are not actively using drugs in our programs. Uh, so by the time they've made that decision to change, uh, we're dealing more with how do we help you overcome some of the impediments that have been put in place or impacts by drug use, right? So how do we help you move on to a new life from the things that have happened while you're using drugs? But those conversations definitely come up uh, in mostly in, in organic ways where uh, we're really big believers in like open groups, process groups, where people are talking about things that have impacted them and getting feedback from others that have kind of walked through it. You know, therapeutic communities are very, very helpful and a really good model where you know, one of the methods of therapy are your peers, right? People that have gone through similar things. And, you know, it was a model adopted out of mental health back in the 50s. Then we went to this uber medical model where it was just a doctor and a patient. And there was 100 people living in a program with all these different things going on. And nobody was together because everybody had a doctor telling what they could or couldn't do. We believe in a, in a model where you're part of a community and people share in each other's recovery. And you're all kind of moving up the mountain together and helping people because there's nothing truer than A helps B and A gets better. And that's what happens in a therapeutic community where part of the, the process is of learning is by helping other people. You actually internalize the information. So, Yeah. 
I love that. Uh, therapeutic communities, believing in people, having a way out. Um, final thoughts to our, our listeners who are inspired by um, by this hope. I think that final thoughts is really believing in people and um, that there's power in recovery, there, that you have um, the ability within yourself and you have the support of others to change. Um, and we need to spread that uh, message to everyone far and wide, to our politicians and city hall and to and the state legislator, legislature, to um, our friends who, are, who may be struggling. We need to change the culture, I think, of society and recognize that addiction is very, um, is, is very real. It's very personal and um, that it can, there, that there is recovery and there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that that's what our work at The Way Out really does. And hopefully in three to five years, we're seeing a completely di different San Francisco where there's really a, a network of people in recovery that celebrates, um, celebrates living their best life and is bringing people at these various interruption points and saying, hey, you can do it too. So I mean, I'm encouraged. Love. Love that. Uh, three to five years. That's pretty optimistic. That's great. My goal. <laughs> Steve, what about you? You know, there's a lot of ways for people to get involved. So if you're in the community and you don't like you don't like what you see, you know, you can always contact us through our website, thewayoutsf.org. Uh, there's a lot of movement on supporting recovery efforts. I think at our core, we believe investing in models that promote recovery, foster independence, and restore hope. And, you know, if you have a loved one, a friend, or someone you know struggling with addiction, is homeless or incarcerated, what would you want for them? And if you believe, like, in your heart that people can change, if you believe people can, you know, want to be the best of themselves, and if you believe people can overcome addiction and reclaim their lives, then there it really is only one solution, that you should join this movement of promoting recovery, you should join us, you should help us continue to fight uh, not only local, but state and national politics to kind of change this narrative and to get a more balanced approach where recovery is forefront uh, and the primary option for people struggling with addiction instead of keeping people sick and keep, keeping people stuck on the streets with the promise that we're gonna someday give you a house. I think that you know there's a, a much more humane model where we give people back their lives and then we support them in this journey. So Dr. Dr. Lev, thank you for having us this morning. It was really, again, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you and to share in your work. You know, you're a very, uh, your message resonates with us and a lot of our coalition. And from a medical standpoint, it's really refreshing to hear from somebody who's a medical doctor that's so balanced in their response to addiction. I just want to say thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. I want to thank you. Steve Adami, Destiny uh, Pletch. Um, hope for people, not giving up, and I love the name, A Way Out. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to FAF, Families Against Fentanyl. Visit familiesagainstfentanyl.org to learn more. 
High Truths producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.